Hi everyone. Uh, so the statement by Rene Descartes is, uh, I think, therefore I am. But this statement might be changed over the next 50 years. So uh, I would highly appreciate it and join, uh, join this podcast and I would be honored to welcome Dr. Neet Tenenfold in this podcast. So hi, Dr. Neet Tenenfold. Hey, yeah, I'm impressed with how you got the last name. That's good. It's not an yeah. easy one. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, difficult, but hey, exactly. yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, uh, so we're going to talk about uh, what is the human factors uh, change over the course of the uh, advancement in technology in artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, so let me uh, give the brief introduction of yours to the, our audience. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Tenenfold is uh, he's a president of the Tennessee Valley chapter of the human factor. and. Uh, Ergonomics Society, and also PI of ATAG uh, ATTAC Lab uh, at UH. Uh, also, he has received many research grants as a PI and co-PI to work on a user experience and human machine teaming projects. On top of that, he has been in invited as a guest speaker to numerous conferences and meetings, including the annual Lockheed Martin Autonomy uh, Executive Steering Committee meeting. Uh, he is author of more than 25 papers and was awarded the 2018 Raja Parshuram Award for Scientific Impact by the International Neuro Ergonomics Society. So, um, again, <laughs> welcome, Dr. Neid. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, let's start with uh, what is your uh, academic journey or education journey over the last years? Yeah, absolutely. So I started um, my undergrad actually down the road at Auburn University as just a oh. psychology student. Yeah. Um, after a year there, I loved it, but I wanted to transfer back closer to home, so I grew up in Virginia. Ah. And so I went to the University of Virginia for my undergrad. Um, at the time, I don't think I knew what I wanted to do. I even wound up minoring in astronomy. I mean, it has nothing to do with <laughs> psychology, but um, it was... It was not until I think the last semester of my senior year that I decided I wanted to go to grad school, oh. which was not great because I hadn't done any of the GRE or anything like that. Oh. So I wound up taking a year off, um, but then kind of found a niche that I was really interested in for research. And so I applied for graduate school at Colorado State University, and there was focusing mostly on uh, human vision. And so looking at the visual system. Uh, as a function of potential top-down or bottom-up, I can go into that if you want me to, but um, processes. Um, after that, I went to the Air Force Academy for a two-year postdoc, mm -hmm. and that's where my research kind of really pivoted to what I'm doing now. And so that was more human-machine teaming. Mm -hmm. um, I was there until 2019 working out of uh, what we call the work, the Warfighter Effectiveness Research Center mm -hmm. at the Air Force Academy. Uh, and then had the opportunity to come here to UAH uh, in 2019. So, awesome. Yeah. Oh, so you have a whole expanded journey of figuring out your passion and yes. indulging into your passion, and uh, here, you, here you are. <laughs> yeah, man, and I, I, I tell everybody that asks, I'm the luckiest man alive. I stumbled into this career, but I can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, man, I, I love what I do. I love the research I get to uh, engage in, uh, and I had no idea even you know months away from graduation undergrad that I was going to be doing this so well, it's worked uh, out. That's an inspiring journey I would say. <laughs> well thank you. Some would call it inspiring, some would call it poorly thought through but it worked out. Yeah. Well uh, so 
I would say like when you find out your passion, mm-hmm. you you sit on the hypersonic plane and you just ran into because you mm. now you have thrust to grow in mm. that particular field. So uh, like it, after that, your growth will be exponential when you figure out what you want to do for your like you know enjoyment. So work yeah. seems like fun. Basically, Absolutely. at that point of time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I work all the time, but it doesn't feel like work. Like, yes, exactly. I still love doing what I'm yeah, doing. Yeah, like basically, sometimes I, yeah. uh, when I when I feel that uh, I am doing what I love, I'm in that zone. You know, the, the I think psychology people call it zone. You know, mm-hmm. when in that zone, uh, when you attach detach yourself at times, basically. Yeah, yeah. When you can get in that flow, and the you know hours just melt away. Yeah, it's, it's like, a lot of it's a good position to be <laughs> it's in. It's good. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, let's uh, talk about a little bit technical stuff. So, yeah. uh, so first of all, my first question is, what is cognitive psychology? Yeah, so when you look at the context from which cognitive psychology arose, I think it helps to contextualize what cognitive psychology actually is, right? And so mm-hmm. traditionally, psychology was focusing on what we just call behaviorism, right? And so this is kind of, it's still a line of research in mm-hmm. psychology, but it, it's not necessarily... Um, of the same prominence that it used to be, right? So behaviorism used to say, well, it still says, but um, would focus on here are the inputs to the human, the information, and here's the output. So it's the human behavior. So we care about inputs, we care about outputs, and they didn't really care what happened in the middle, right? So they don't care about what's going on necessarily in the brain. Now, this is an oversimplification, obviously. But it's the inputs, something happens in the middle, and you get these outputs. Cognitive psychology said, we're going to kind of hyper-focus on what's happening there in the middle, right? Okay, so, interesting. Yeah, so as we start thinking about uh, effects of learning and memory, right? We start thinking about effects of trust, which is my particular interest. Mm-hmm. Um, that pertains to cognitive psychology. And so what I usually tell people is when you think of psychology, you think of two things typically. One, you think of therapy, and the other, you think of why do people think what they think, right? Uh-huh. And so cognitive psychology is that latter bit. Right, and I so see. you even see this kind of manifest in other fields and other domains. So behavioral economics um, is kind of an inherently cognitive field, even though it has behavior in, in the yeah. name there, uh, focusing on kind of the irrationalities of the human decision-making process that leads us to make kind of non-optimal decisions. Mm-hmm. And so this is a very roundabout way of saying that cognitive psychology is really focusing on that middle part of the transformation of the inputs mm-hmm to that resultant output. I see. So basically, it's a bridge between input and output. So yeah. basically, it's a kind of black box, and you're figuring out that back, what is going on in that back black box. Exactly. I mean, yeah, so if you just think about it in machine learning, right? You have yes. the inputs, you have the outputs. Yeah. Cognitive psychology are all the hidden layers. All right. So you're exploring neural networks, basically. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Okay, okay. So, um, uh, so what's uh, specific area? So. You are you are focusing on exploring what's going on in our brain, mm-hmm. or so what? Like you, the cognitive technology deal with the behavior or brain structure, or both maybe. A little bit of both. So human factors, you know, that's what I predominantly focus in. Mm-hmm. It's kind of unique in the sense that. Whereas a lot of academic disciplines, especially in psychology, are mm-hmm. more focused on the basic side, mm-hmm. so the theoretical development, human factors does that, but we also focus a lot on the applied. And so there's a lot of integration into the real world. And so there are still absolutely theoretical considerations to be made. You yeah. know, we need to understand the functioning of the brain to actually be able to model what human behavior is going to be. 
But there is also a big component of the prediction of the behavior in that instance, right? So as we start making recommendations to um, you know, the community of self-driving car manufacturers, yes. there needs to be an understanding of, okay, not just the theoretical, but what are the actual behavioral implications of you know, your design choice yes. in the actual <clears throat> resultant interaction between the human and the system. I see. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so also it uh, affect the day-to-day -day life of the people, how they, so like uh, in advancement in the cognitive psychology, mm -hmm. what's a particular implementation for the normal human being in the day-to-day -day life? Because like this is very highly, uh, so input, output, we, we all people get inputs and we, something going on in, in the brain. Mm -hmm. The study is the cognitive psychology, but what is the application, how we can experience more, so for example, self-driving car, mm -hmm. right? So when you have autonomous car in your hand, you are just sitting there, right? Mm -hmm. But what is the, I would say, how you can improve that experience? Mm -hmm. That also mm -hmm. involved in cognitive psychology? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So we talk about, and I'm gonna just go back to specifically human factors, but mm -hmm. I think this pertains to any sort of applied elements of yeah. cognitive psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially the three goals of what we do in human factors um, from an applied perspective is increased safety, increased performance, and increased satisfaction. Oh, okay. Right? And so that can be everything from what are the design elements that affect the actual safe interactions with the system, mm -hmm. but it can also be, you know, uh, I know we were talking about before, I have a whole bunch of Apple products, right? Yeah. Apple has gotten me to buy into their ecosystem. Yes. Right? And that is an inherently cognitive element to ah. it. Um, because what they're trying to do is create these associations, uh, but also, you know, it essentially builds off of this um, kind of animalistic tendency we have yes. of in-group versus out-group, right? Oh, yeah. Apple versus PC, right? <laughs> yes. Auburn versus Alabama, etc. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So now, um, what are the major projects? So we talk about what is cognitive psychology, right? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what are the major projects you have been involved currently or your past projects or what your current projects are. Yeah, so... Um, when I was at the Air Force Academy, I was very fortunate. I came into a lab with a lot of, you know, pardon the phrase, cool toys, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, research toys, but. Yeah. Um, and one of them was an actual Tesla, right? And so we had the opportunity to be among the first labs to actually publish data um, with these real, quote unquote, self-driving cars yes. in somewhat of a realistic world environment, right? There's still confines we have to take to make sure that we're protecting the human subject. Um, yeah. But we're looking at um, several different things, right? So one of the projects uh, we looked at with the Tesla was uh, the familiarity with the system and how that kind of interacts with your trust of the system. So mm -hmm. I, I think a great example of this is when Tesla brought us our car, <laughs> he essentially handed over the keys and said, have fun, right? <laughs> and so, yeah. And so there was not this necessarily explanation of the different features so mm -hmm. much or, uh, you know, the bounds in which the system would, um, you know, perform a certain task. Mm -hmm. But he just handed it over. And so I remember distinctly um, one of my collaborators, Doc Vin Dr. Vic Finnamore um, at West Virginia now, uh, was I think one of the first ones to actually drive it. We went out to go use its auto parking feature. Uh, oh. He found a spot and 
I think it was four straight trials that the car started backing in and he just hit the brakes. He didn't trust it to actually continue out. Oh, right? really? Yeah, and so this kind of raises the question of, okay, does having any degree of familiarity of how the system's gonna work dictate your willingness to rely on it, right? And what we find, oh. yeah, is right at the beginning, when people don't know how the system's gonna do it, right? when you pull into a parking spot, most of the time you're pulling in nose first, right? Yeah. Um, but what Tesla does is it pulls past and then it starts backing in, uh -huh. but it backs in with at least a three-point turn. And so it'll come back towards the car, or at least this is how it used to be, I don't know if it still is, but mm -hmm. uh, it would come towards the car, it would stop, it would straighten out, and then it would pull back in, right? And so oh, yeah. there's this window wherein if you don't know what the system's gonna do, you don't know at what point it's gonna stop, right? Because it keeps getting yeah. back closer and closer and closer to that other car. Uh, so you, you're kind of building a fear in your brain, oh, I'm gonna hit this car. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, so that's why you instinctively put up, like your, put, put your put your paddle on the brake. Yeah, yeah, I oh, mean, okay. even if you don't, like in this case, there's no real threat of physical injury, Yeah. but there are still issues associated with uh, you know, wrecking an $80,000 car is not uh, great. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, what we found is those who were given some degree of information or saw it work the first time tended not to intervene. But those who didn't have that information, uh, over half mm -hmm. did intervene on that first one, right? And so it's one thing in a parking environment to have that intervention. It's another thing to potentially at highway speeds have that intervention because you don't know what it's going to do. Yeah, um, and we see this all the time in all different domains of people overreacting to whatever you know stimulus is. Yeah, right. So one example would be pilot-induced oscillations, right? And so you start doing this. And yeah, then, um, and so you get that you know even in vehicles sometimes. Um, so uh, we had a series of projects with the Tesla. That was obviously my postdoc. I came here. Mm -hmm. We've still continued some of those. So I'm still collaborating with um, some folks at the Air Force Academy. Um, but since I've gotten here to UAH, I've kind of moved away from Tesla specific or self-driving car specific, mm -hmm. and now focusing on kind of some of the broader issues inherent with um, automated technologies. So uh, a couple of my graduate students and I just published an article uh, looking at people's mental models of virtual personal assistants. Huh. And so we'll see if I can say it without it actually setting off, but like, is your perception of Siri mm -hmm. the, like, do you think of it as a single entity that everybody interacts with the same, or do you think of it as individual nodes, right? And so what, what yeah. is your thought? I thought, uh, like, for me, like, when I interact with the CD, it has, mm -hmm. so basically, if I took, a, like, critical manner, CD has a lot of information about myself, mm -hmm. basically. Like, see, uh, like, see it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> see, like, I consider it as, like, like my assistant, right? So mm -hmm. I instinctively say as a C, like though it's a kind of a computer model, yeah. but uh, yeah, C, C knows a lot of my stuff, like what I like, what I dislike, mm -hmm. which type of music I like, because uh, initially I got information, hey, should you play this music? Mm -hmm. Call this person, mm -hmm. right? So I think for me, it's, it seems like my personal assistant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I considered that like particular algorithm as my own, but yeah, like other my friend, they have their own series. Mm, mm -hmm. Like they have their own uh, personal assistant, which they knows that like and dislikes for themselves. Yeah, like, yeah. So I consider them as uh, like individual entity, but 
I know like on the back of and it does computer algorithm which knows all the uh, because it's kind of integrated all the people's information so yeah yeah but on the topple level I consider that as my individual thing yeah well, I mean you're yeah. kind of an interesting example because you have domain expertise in SHA's oh, yes, programming. Yes, right? yes. But I think it's really interesting to hear you articulate that difference because to some degree there is kind of this expectation of it knows something about me, but I don't know where like one Siri ends and the other begins. Yes. Right? So yeah. if my Siri and my phone screwed up, we don't really know whether that would and you observe that, whether that would be reason enough for you to stop trusting your Siri. Right? Right. And so you know, this question is, although appears fundamental, it's kind of critically important as we start thinking about these systems moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, because all of these companies are developing, even if not a virtual personal assistant, a, a kind of ecosystem in yes. which they're all interacting, right? And so right. does my interaction or my observed interaction with somebody else mm -hmm. interacting, um, is that going to influence my expectations of my own system? And what are the oh. bounds of that, right? So if yeah. I have a Siri in my phone, is that going to affect my trust of Siri if Apple puts Siri in a self-driving car, right? And am oh. I extrapolating the Siri in the self-driving car to the totality of the self-driving car? I see. Yeah, and so we have this really interesting case where the field up to this point hasn't been able to answer the very simple question, right, yeah. of is my Siri the same as your Siri, right? And what, what doesn't matter in these cases, and this is kind of one of the nuances of psychology, what doesn't really matter is the objective truth, right? It doesn't matter necessarily what is objectively true about where one Siri ends and one begins. What yeah. matters is what people expect, expect. or believe. Oh, yes. Yeah. So it's based on like, uh, yeah, like in the technical term, it's a whole different game. But in mm. the uh, brain term, like what we experience, we thought, yeah. we believe it's a whole different game to take away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, and so, you know, that has been part of our exploration of actually trying to just define what constitutes a system in the minds of users. Um, I see. Yeah. And, and then, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, also, I want to add, like, when we extend the Siri from mobile to any other device, for mm -hmm. example, self-driving car or maybe in the future plane, can we trust them? Yeah. There's a big, bigger question to, you know, because like it's not equal, I trust my mobile phone Siri mm -hmm. equal to I trust on my self-driving Siri because in self-driving, I'm risking myself. In mobile, I'm not risking myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that's another really interesting kind of open question in the field of typically how we've defined trust doesn't make room for necessarily a risk element, right? Mm. And so typically what we are considering when we think about trust is your expectations that a given system is going to help you accomplish a given task, right? So yeah. John Lee uh, kind of has that uh, definition and it's usually in a task characterized by vulnerability or uncertainty. The problem is that we do have these observed effects where people's trust varies as a function of the risk. Mm -hmm. right? And this kind of gets back to that initial question of cognitive psychology versus behavioral psychology of, yeah. you know, your trust may not change, but your trusting behaviors may change, right? So you may be less willing to let Tesla get to that edge at, you know, 75 miles an hour yeah. than you're willing to let it get in just a parking lot or something like that. Oh, yeah. Um, but, I mean, it is a really interesting question, right? Because 
so much of the consideration of these systems does boil down to the trust with the systems, right? Yeah. Um, and the battle we constantly fight kind of on the human factor side is with engineers who say, we'll just train them, right? <laughs> but training is not always the answer, right? It, yeah. It's got to be an element of you know, comfortable interaction. And I think the best way, and you know, I'll get off my pedestal here in just a second, but I think the best way to kind of illustrate this is if you're riding in the car with somebody else, mm -hmm. right? So if I'm driving and you're sitting in my passenger seat and I do something that makes you uneasy, you communicate something to yes. me, right? Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have to be verbal, right? I can see you kind of bracing in your seat or I can do the little, you know, phantom stomping yes. on the yeah. brake pedal that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, but there is that degree of communication. And to date, there has not been any attempt of the vehicle to understand the human in that context, right? Yes. And so what we're reliant on is the human to either express distrust through an intervention, so hitting the brake, disengaging, auto-driving, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, or just kind of exist in their distrust. Right? There's not this kind of reassurance loop that yeah. would be, you know, you, Chris, saying, Nate, you almost missed... Or you almost hit that uh, pedestrian there. Yeah. I said, no, I didn't. I saw, you know, they were turning there. And so I can reassure you or I can say, yeah, I screwed up. Oh, um, yeah. So th this factor is not exist till now in the self-driving car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing. What if, like, okay, so what if uh, we, so what if we develop the, like, system which uh, analyze the human behavior, right? Like the person who is sitting in the driving seat, Tesla steering is there, but it's autonomous. It's driving by itself. Rather than uh, inputting the user behavior, what if I observe constantly the driver and based on his expression, my computer system... So, of course, one one area, my self-driving car working, like working its system and analyzing all the view and driving, basically. Mm -hmm. The other system, which like monitor the the driver and uh, take the information mm -hmm. and it informed that this is what I'm doing. You mm -hmm. see, uh, yeah, yeah, this is what I'm doing and I think it's right. Yeah. Tell this information to user. Yeah. So that's why it's kind of building a trust. So when I, I drive, you sit beside me, I'm telling, hey, I'm going to 70 mile or 80 mile per mm -hmm. hour, but it's okay, it's highway. Mm -hmm. So I can go there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, and I think what you're hitting on is a really important um, line of study in the field on this whole idea of transparency, right? And so you see this sometimes talked about explainable AI, right? Yes. So some of the concerns we have yeah. moving forward. Um, but just inherent, you know, transparent designs that communicate the system state to the user, right? Yeah. So the user can know, okay, yes, it in fact does see this car up here, um, and therefore I, I'm okay, right? Okay, but yeah. one of the issues you see, and you know, I have a bunch of gripes with Elon. I think he's a genius, but I also think he makes really irresponsible decisions at times. <laughs> um, and one of the biggest concerns is that he has historically kind of poo-pooed the idea of monitoring the individual, right? Now, he's not monitoring it for the context of trust. He's monitoring it, or the conversation usually revolves around paying attention. Yeah. Um, but there is still this element of there needs to be better communication, right? Because you see all these cases um, wherein the vehicle will slam into like the back of a fire truck, right? And oh. they're obvious, I mean, 
this is your domain, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is there are issues inherent with computer vision in the processing of red, right? Yeah. And so the human visual system, we also struggle with this, right? We know, we've known for decades that fire trucks should actually be lime green, right? Yeah. Or at least just not red because uh, we have two, essentially we have two different types of systems, a day system and a night system for our visual system. Yes. Um, and the night is particularly bad at picking up red, <laughs> yeah. but the day is not all that great. Not all that, yeah. Either, at least when compared to like lime green or something like that. Um, but, you know, when the vehicle is, when the Tesla, um, and I'm picking on Tesla, but I'm sure others have a similar idea or issue, even though they've incorporated LIDAR earlier on. Um, <laughs> I'm on a soapbox here. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but there needs to be sufficient communication to the user of what the vehicle sees and what it doesn't see in the immediate, right? So a lot of these cars yeah. will do a good job of presenting, okay, I know that there is a vehicle in front of me and so I'm gonna slow down, right? Yeah. But I don't know if it sees anything, you know, 100 yards out, right? Oh, yes. And so at a certain point, it's gonna either have to slam on its brakes or I'm gonna slam on our brakes or we <laughs> reach the point of no return. Yeah, but yeah. like, uh, so the, the issue is like, we can see very far or mm -hmm. like, but well, the the system, autonomous system, they have a GPS and all that kind of information. But the particularly, I would say, uh, so right now, this is also like an interesting area which is going on in self-driving in technical terms is uh, how to incorporate GPS plus vision uh, mm -hmm. and uh, LiDAR. I don't know, I'm not sure they are using LiDAR or not, but uh, yeah, computer vision, there still need to improve for the deep learning algorithms mm -hmm. too, because like we don't have sufficient data for self-driving cars, first yeah. of all, right? So, and uh, I just, uh, in the, my previous semester, I present one, uh, so present one, uh, like kind of case study or presentation in my signal analysis classes, uh, like 2.5D voice, basically. So what is this is like in the simple voice, so, so rather than just vision detection, why not vision plus audio? Because, well, there is some car, it's probably mm -hmm. a voice. Mm -hmm. So I want to know how far that car is in terms mm -hmm. of voice, because like in the night, mm -hmm. I, if I cannot see the car, I can hear the voice of the car, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So people are also adding voice, uh, vision plus GPS tracking. Yeah. But still, uh, this area is kind of growing, so. Yeah, there's this a lot going on in there. And uh, of course, all there is always problem. Can I trust this system? Yeah, well, and I think you hit on a really interesting point that is humans are relying predominantly on our visual system for driving, right? But yes. there are these other sensory modalities. Yeah, right? yeah. And I mean, it's the same reason that ambulances, fire trucks, police cars have sirens. <laughs> yeah. Right? So even if yeah. we're not paying attention or not looking in the right area, we still um, hear them and react to them. Um, but I think this, and this kind of gets to a whole other issue, and I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts, kind mm -hmm. of being on the deep learning side. Yeah. It's not clear to me that we solve the problem of self-driving with deep learning. Right, because uh, yeah. the amount of data that it takes to understand whatever's going on on the back end mm -hmm. makes it such that edge cases are essentially definitionally impossible to train on. Right, they're just so rare that how do you do it? 
so yeah, uh, so in deep learning, the main issue when uh, when training the model is uh, when you train any deep learning neural network, uh, very like often with the data, it uh, comes with a overtraining, mm -hmm. or I would say, uh, what is the word? Uh, overfitting. Overfitting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Overfitting. So I overfit the entire model. Mm -hmm. So it works really good in the existing data, mm -hmm. but it might be work bad with mm -hmm. the future data. Mm -hmm. So that's the one big issue which I am uh, concerned with when when any when I when I train even my research work when I train my uh, neural network. This is a big issue mm -hmm. which I was always concerned about. And another thing is, I was uh, in the past couple of months, I was thinking like uh, mimicking the, okay, so main problem with uh, deep learning is their structure and neural, neuron structures, they are constant, mm -hmm. right? So I was thinking why not apply the neuroplasticity because like neuroplasticity, what it does is we, neurons, our brain, how I indulge into, okay, how our brain works because like when we got new information, it makes new, new neuron connections, mm -hmm. right? Why not mimic same thing? I don't know. I didn't read much about that, but like I didn't find any paper which deal with like kind of dynamic uh, deep learning model. Mm, mm. You know, rather than a static model training that model, why not make dynamic? Yeah. You know? So from a technical perspective, I, I am I'm unable to speak to the feasibility of that technically. But yes, I think... but even like this, like dynamic model, yeah. the training of dynamic model, like. I don't know. They require constant new data uh -huh. to make this dynamic. Yeah, and we don't. We are we are not sure this dynamic model. What is the trustability for that model well, in the self-driving cars? Yeah. Well, and I think you're hitting on a really important distinction here. That, and that is the functional difference between the human brain and these current approaches. Right. Yes. You didn't need to see. 10,000 pair of glasses to know that something is a pair of glasses, right? Yes. You developed a rule-based understanding of what constitutes a pair of glasses. Yeah. And that makes it inherently easy to then, you know, extrapolate that information to a variety of different domains. Right? One of the theories of why humans have developed such complex language is it's evolutionarily beneficial. Beneficial, yes. I can experience something and I can tell you about it and you can recognize it. Yeah. Right? I can't tell a neural network, hey, <laughs> this one time I had a three-legged deer that came out of nowhere and just hopped along the road. Ah. It's, it may struggle, right? If, yeah. If the feature component of that other leg is something that <laughs> matters to this neural network, right? And so you're exactly right that we also have this degree of neuroplasticity of you know neurons that fire together, wire together, we talk about it all yeah. the time, use it or lose it. Um, most of the... The development there is a function of kind of this neuronal pairing, right? And so, huh. one of the reasons it's so important to learn languages or instruments or things like that at a younger age mm -hmm. is because you have a lot of neurons in your brain and a lot of synapses, so the connections between the neurons, mm -hmm. that you're essentially going to lose with age if you don't use them. Yes. And so, you know, we're developing this network that we're still going to be using. Yeah. There is there are degrees of neuroplasticity in the sense that we can um, absolutely, you know, neurogenesis of the generation of neurons and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But your brain is also remarkably competent at reusing things that it otherwise doesn't need to use, right? Yes. And so you see this with people who have lost vision, right? So your primary visual cortex in the back of your brain, yeah. for those 
who have never had vision, that primary visual cortex, instead of just sitting there useless, sometimes gets reappropriated in the brain for other computations. Yes. And yeah, so... Stephen Hawking's. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And so, I mean, it, it seems to make sense that if what we're trying to do with an artificial neural network, right, we're saying we're trying to at least insinuate that it's based off of the neurons in our brain, yeah. right? It would make sense to have some sort of dynamic thing that you're talking about that yeah. can be reactive, but also understand the nuances such that it can forecast into the future yes. like our own brain can. Exactly, because like uh, when when you make dynamic, so rather than just making software which runs the autonomous car, which is static, mm -hmm. why not like make dynamics so that it's changed over the period of time, mm. so that like that model become like you basically it's also interact with you, interact, get the feeling what you are feeling, and also judging based on your feeling. So for example, I am driving, so if so a couple of people has instinct to drive very fast. They mm. are not afraid of uh, fast driving. A yeah. couple of people are on a safe side. You know, if there is a 40 miles per hour uh, limit, I drive 35. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of people may go 40 or 42, you know. Mm. So they're fast drivers. A couple of them are slow drivers. Autonomous car don't care about that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, so making dynamic model, it so each and every car, if they like make this model, it also encounters human factors. And they see, the, okay, this person like when I drive slow. Yeah. So it's kind of uh, also adding human instincts and feelings into the, that model and making dynamic, basically. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I mean, so some of the manufacturers have essentially a way to quote unquote fat finger that in, right? So you can go into Tesla's menu. Mm -hmm. uh, and I keep using Tesla just because that's who I'm most familiar with. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> where you can go in and say, I'm okay with you going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, right? Uh -huh. But there's not that kind of ongoing thing of, that's a very specific instance that could generate discomfort, but there's a much broader thing, right? Uh -huh. People are going to have nuance in what constitutes comfort for the driving experience. <laughs> yeah. right? It could be following too close, it could be speed, oh, yes. it could be lane deviations. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it could be the big rig that comes by you. Uh, <laughs> so I think you're exactly right of having a system that, that learns, but I don't think necessarily learns in the typical computer science deep learning way, right? It has oh, to have... We need a whole, like, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I don't know, like, uh, I'm aerospace engineer, so yeah. <laughs> but yeah, deep learning, uh, like it's not only to we we either either we have to change uh, neural networks with something else, or we have to like augment neural network with other uh, kind of advanced system. Actually, reinforcement learning might be a good 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 option, but uh, still, re reinforcement learning has their own limitations. So yeah, and uh, yeah, we uh, I don't know like. Computer science uh, people, or maybe uh, other people, have to like humans as a cognitive psychology experts and uh, computer scientists. They have to work simultaneously, mm -hmm. hand by hand, to uh, overcome these issues. I would say. Yeah. Well, yeah. and you know, I think the thing that drives me particularly nuts, and I think a lot of other folks who are <laughs> in this domain, yeah. uh, you know, Elon this summer tweeted out something about how the issue of solving self-driving was a lot harder than he anticipated. 
to which all the psychologists in the room say, no crap, right? <laughs> the human brain is the most complex thing we've ever observed, <laughs> yes. and we don't really understand how it works. Yeah. And you're saying that, yeah, just throw enough data at it, and we'll figure out how to oh, right. No. <laughs> right? They've done a good job in very specific cases. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, like, over the... <sighs> Yeah, human human brain is. Uh, it's unbelievable, com, com, unbelievably complex of you know what our brain is actually able to do yeah. in that environment, right? Yeah, like each and every environment we interact differently. Yeah, like human. So your brain is whole different story than mine, mm -hmm. right? Your neuron connections has different uh, like growth rather mm -hmm. than mine, right? So we act differently on different situation. Yeah, right. But self-driving car not. Yeah. Well, and you see a lot of these cases wherein not only does it not interact differently, sometimes it doesn't even act appropriately in an obvious case. <laughs> yes. I, there was some picture that went around the other day of their, uh, and I hate to keep picking on Tesla, but again, it's what I'm most familiar <laughs> with, uh, of the Tesla uh, misinterpreting the moon as a stoplight, right? What? Somebody, yeah. And somebody <laughs> tweeted at Elon saying, look, the moon is not an edge case. <laughs> this is an inherently predictable situation, yeah. right? Yeah. To solve it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that gets back to the trust of you have these kind of expectations of what the system should be able to do. Yeah. But when it mistakes the moon for a stoplight, why, why should I trust it now? Yeah. I mean, this is not something that is so fringe <laughs> they wouldn't have thought of it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, so still uh, improvement is needed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. more research has to be, uh, goes on in this domain before they come up with good product into market. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, there is so much of that human element that they need to consider. Of oh, the yes. human interactions, the trust, the reliance. Um, and part of that, I think, comes to branding. Part of that, I think, is actual design. Um, you know, there are a lot of other companies that are having similar issues here. Um, but, you know, I, I think it is a, it's a neat time to be alive, <laughs> but it's also at times a maddening time to be a human factors. Yeah, because like uh, human factor is so much important because like it doesn't matter how much good product is. Yeah. You know, like until and unless, so for example, Apple, like Apple has a brand, right? People trust it on them. Mm -hmm. Other Android products, might have super awesome feature which you are not able to find in Apple, but still, mm -hmm. people trust on Apple. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's a main selling point because people trust on them. Yeah. Right. And people over the period of time will provide something which no other brand can provide. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's the same as like, it doesn't matter how good your autonomous car or self-driving car is people trust on them or not, it's a main issue. So that's yeah. where I think human factor play a very critical role, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I think Apple's a great example of this, right? Because Steve Jobs was essentially the one to popularize personal computing. Yes. Right. Creating the graphical user interface for people to interact with made it mm -hmm. so that now, you know, you didn't have to learn some degree of inline commands yeah. to generate a Word document, right? It had an icon. <laughs> you could click on the icon. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, it, like you said, it's a great example wherein people get this, develop this allegiance because of their trust or their expectations or just their affinity yeah. for it, right? That make it such that even though an Apple product may be inferior to an Android product, I'm not saying it is, but it may be, mm -hmm. uh, People who like Apple are going to stick with Apple, right? Yeah. It, they just make it a really easy experience. Yeah, know? because like Apple main focus is 
Make things simple. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. It, it is less of give the user the tools to do what they want and more of give the users what we know they want. Yeah, because like, um, like I, I see a lot of companies' uh, mobile phone website, like they mention this feature we have, this much mm -hmm. amount of megapixel camera, we have flip cameras, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. People don't care about that. People want simple thing which they can trust they can do their daily usage. Mm -hmm. The Apple perfectly fit for that. Oh yeah, well, that, and I'm gonna butcher this quote, but Steve Jobs once said something to the effect of, people don't care about your product, they care about what your product can do for them. Yes, right? exactly. And so, and, and I think that, to some degree, is going to dictate, as we go back to self-driving cars, the future of these self-driving cars, right? Because right now, you're having a lot of early adopters. Yes. Um, even, you know, even as it becomes more democratized, you're still, they're either financial barriers or technological barriers, right? So there's a company, Comma AI, mm -hmm. um, run by George Hotz, that for about $1,000 can turn most vehicles, most modern vehicles, into a self-driving car, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's just a little plug-in insert and a camera on the dashboard. But there's still a degree of technical <laughs> experience that's necessary. Uh -huh. And so the people you're getting adopting all of these technologies now are those who are really interested in the technologies. But what does it look like when it's, you know, the suburban uh, soccer mom or the yeah. dad taking his kids to karate or whatnot <laughs> who have no knowledge or interest in learning about this stuff? Yes. But they just want a vehicle that's going to get them from point A to point B. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. So, yeah, basically the bullet, bullet point is this system is capable enough to get me from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. That's what they care. Yeah. For safety. Of yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, and it is that safety component. And this is where you start getting discrepancies between, I think, what's promised and what's realized of calling it full self-driving suggests to people that it is full self-driving, right? Oh, yeah. But it's not full self-driving, right? <laughs> it is partially self-driving. Yes. It does a very good job in certain circumstances. But people have expectations and thus purchase this equipment thinking, okay, it will allow me to take a nap on the way to work, right? <laughs> or it'll allow me to read a book on my commute right? yeah. or what have you. And so um, I think that's another area of you know, real interest of, okay, people have expectations. What happens when those expectations are violated? Um, uh. And what does that do to kind of their long-term trust development, interactions with the system? Yeah, because when one, pe one person trusts broke, yeah. uh, word of mouth spread very oh, fast. Absolutely. Very absolutely. fast. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it effect, effect on your sales of any company yeah. and the reputation of that product. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and it's, it's profoundly interesting to see, you know, this is not scientific by any means, but, you know, going to Twitter and following any big news stories about a self-driving car accident or fatality or you know any robotics company that's gone bottom up or things like that. Yeah. You know, it is okay. How much can we chart the contagion of that information? Of and once it gets hold in its host and its you know, you know user, what influence is that going to have on their experience? Yes. Um, yeah. It's it's big domain. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. When you kind of step back and look at the thirty thousand foot view, it's a little daunting. <laughs> oh, this. Still a lot of uh, component here and there need to assemble to make yeah. 
uh, for good system modes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, I don't want it to come across as I in any way am kind of a neo-Luddite or anything that uh, doesn't see the utility in this technology. I think this technology is awesome. Yeah. I just think that there needs to be greater, and this isn't just for self-driving, but I think there needs to be greater consideration of the human user beyond just a, let's just train it. Uh, it's not going to work. It's, yeah. it's not going to work like that at yeah. all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, <sighs> yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about <laughs> let's uh, talk about uh, we talk about lot like we talk about Tesla. Yeah. Siri, it's very interesting to uh, communicate with that. Now let's focus on specific age group people. So yeah. right now. Uh, Early adopters, right? Mm -hmm. They mostly, I, as per my point of view, I might be wrong, but early adopters are between age of 20 to 30 or 35. Mm -hmm. Because like they are more passionate about current advancement in the technology. Mm -hmm. They want to get new products every day. They encounter, basically they're, they're more indulged into the consumerism, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, so like what's affect the drive brain in the, this autonomy. So what do you think about this group, age group, if they grow maybe 50 years, like uh, they, for example, uh, from 20 year old kid who is using self-driving car, right? When he come to 20, 50 year, 50, uh, his age become 50, mm -hmm. what's your thing? Like what's his perception looks like? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. He encountered a lot of autonomous, not only self-driving car, he used uh, Apple environment. And mm. I'm not saying like phone, yeah. they, they create whole different environment, Absolutely. right? Apple environment, we have Siri, we have, basically we are like mimicking our entire brain into the external products. Mm -hmm. So they have, technically they know what we like. Mm -hmm. Amazon, they know what we purchase. Mm -hmm. They know what, what, what type of uh, sweater we like. Yeah. What type of shoes we like, mm -hmm. right? So this is like kind of we are creating artificial ourselves mm -hmm. by using these different products, right? Yeah, which is not possible before twenty years ago. Yeah, it, right? it, it, and it is incredible because that customizability seems to be what is fostering the growth of a lot of these companies. Yes. Right? So Google giving you results it thinks you want, mm -hmm. not based off of the totality of everybody else, but the totality of people who are like you, yeah. makes it a far superior in terms of finding what you want to find, search engine compared to like Bing, right? Or DuckDuckGo, yeah. right? yeah. things like that. Um, and not saying that Bing doesn't try to do that, but I think Google's just figured out a very good way of going about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. It's I, I'm sure everybody says this, but this has to be the most exciting time to have been alive in history. <laughs> yes, because we are. I agree. We are literally like I don't know how old you are, but my generation. There was a time before everything was on Facebook or MySpace or anything like that. Right? <laughs> so part of my life existed before, really, the popular internet existed. Oh, but kids now, I mean, even some of the younger students I have. Yeah. That's not true, right? Every element of their life, from birth to the present day, mm -hmm. is online, right? Yes. And we're now getting to the point of that touching, essentially, 
every element of your life, right? So you, you started off asking about, you know, the 20-year-old to 50-year-old yeah. uh, in terms of self-driving car. I don't know if we're there yet, but I suspect in the near future, if we're not already there, there will be a generation born for whom they will be able to experience the freedom of vehicles without ever having to learn to drive, right? And so yes. having a truly fully self-driving car, mm -hmm. I think is something that we're going to see this really interesting generational shift um, of kids who come of age of where we typically learned when or how to drive, mm -hmm. um, but don't have to learn that, right? Because the vehicle is going to drive itself. Itself. The interesting question will be, what does the phasing of that look like? Like, I love driving. I love yes. the physicality of driving. Yeah. I've got an automatic, but, you know, I preferred having the old manual cars. It just, it was a full experience for yes. me. Um, and I'm sure there was a similar transition of people going from riding a horse <laughs> to a Model T, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so... I don't know what this looks like because in some ways the difficulty of self-driving cars stems from the fact that not everybody's in a self-driving car, right? Yes. If all self-driving cars are rule-based, you can at least make a reasonable prediction of what they're going to be doing based off of known rules. Oh, yeah. But humans Sweet. are at times irrational, we're flighty, <laughs> we get distracted easily. Yeah. Like that, right? And so... It'll be interesting to see once these 20-year-olds become 50-year-olds, yeah. to what degree do they have the choice to continue to drive, right? It, yeah. it may not be legislative, but it may be these insurance companies saying, all right, well, your insurance is now going to be $50,000 a year if you want to drive yourself because it's just too risky. Yeah. Um, and so as I think, and this is tying back to that initial point of, I think as these generations come up, for whom there has never been a time where they weren't online in some capacity, whether it's parents, post or anything like that, they'll be a lot more comfortable with this transition to a vehicle knowing where it's going, where they're going at all times, yeah. right? Having some sort of information center of saying, you know, you get in your car and it just looks at your schedule and takes you wherever you want to go. Um, it, it's not clear to me that folks my age and older are going to be comfortable with that idea. Yes. I don't have data to support that. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my own expectations. Yes. Um, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Is your expectation that there is going to be an obvious cross-sectional difference in the willingness to rely on a fully self-driving car, not necessarily just because of trust, but because of all the privacy issues and stuff like that? Or do you think that it's something that with time, societally, we're all just going to kind of collectively accept? Um, I would say, um, so if I focus on the transition between the, uh, or like from 20 year old, so when, when self-driving car is already in existence, mm -hmm. uh, and if I were in 20 and go to 50, there is no difference much, but uh, right now we are driving manual cars, right? Mm -hmm. But when self-driving cars come into the picture, it's kind of, uh, so it depends actually. So this innovation of self-driving uh, is like, we already in the words of innovation, we, we encounter, so our brain is adopting lots of new technologies very fast paced. So it will be of course different from coming from 
a horse cart mm-hmm. to car that transition must be different than from car to autonomous car mm-hmm. and it will be faster mm-hmm. that for sure right uh, so uh, if we overcome the trust issue right it will be uh, exponential adaptation of the autonomous car right and uh, one of my friend he he literally has his wallpaper in his mobile in laptop tesla and he want to buy tesla at one point he didn't have right now any sustainable income he's a student mm-hmm. he's not but he want to buy he want to buy that because he's much he even like when he see the tesla he he oh my god like that <laughs> he's his like his expression oh my god oh this awesome yeah yeah so this are kind of early adopters they want to no matter what they want to get tesla mm-hmm. yeah, because it's not like uh, also it's because they are not product oriented but also they are elon musk fans yes absolutely <laughs> that's a big motivator I yeah, think, for a lot of people yeah because like it's a brand yeah you know like the people he he's giving something i'm going to buy it yes yeah so that mindset is changed very fast so he, he is right now 20 year old mm-hmm. right and when he become a 50 year old he must be like uh, so he, when 30 years down the road i don't think it will be dramatically changed for that particular person because he is already motivated mm-hmm. to adapt to this technology mm-hmm. you know because like this age group is right now they, they are more indulged in the facebook Instagram, TikTok and all that kind of social media mm-hmm. what this social media creates is it always gives you new information mm-hmm. constantly mm-hmm. you know you always get your friend uh, going for somewhere which is not possible before before internet mm-hmm. you are in your own narrow environment you know the information in your city mm-hmm. right now you know what's going on in the world what's going on in the other part of the world mm-hmm. right so it makes it change this age group change the uh, this action environment change the adaptation power for that age group so when they become 50 year old mm. i don't know <laughs> yeah and, and i mean it's tough cuz I, i don't know how it is culturally around the world but the automobile in the us has always kind of been seen as not only just a status symbol but also an indicator of some degree of freedom, right? Yes. And I don't mean from government or anything like that, but individual freedom to go whenever, wherever, etc., right? Yes. As a as a country, we're remarkably distributed population-wise, right? Hmm. So, you can drive a long way and still not get to another city. <laughs> um and that's not necessarily the case uh, everywhere yes, else. Yes. And so I don't know to what degree we're also going to see kind of cultural discrepancies mm. there where in no, those This will be not uh like particular line. It will be of course transition. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it will be a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rather than just yeah. one single line. Like for me I I came so till now I was in India. I came in January here mm-hmm. uh 2021. Uh I drive uh, geared cars there. Mm. I never drive even I never see the uh like the autonomous car mm. automatic car mm-hmm. yeah we have gears 1 2 3 4 5 yeah and uh, reverse so we manually change different gears when we drive based yeah. on a speed right now I came here I say oh we just I just have to like drive park that's it 
And we have clutches in our cars. Yeah. Here we don't have clutches, just brake mm -hmm. and accelerator. But this is kind of new automation, like small oh, baby step, but it's, it's, it's still, it's different. Yeah. Well, right? I think that's an important distinction to make of the cars now, even though they don't have these self-driving, are highly automated. Yes. Right? Like, I, I'm not actually, I, I don't expect, but in most cars, I don't think I am doing anything with the pedals other than sending an electrical signal to the computer yeah. to control what needs to be controlled. Yes. Right? There's not that physical component in the same way that you get with the shifting. With the shifting gears. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it will be a... Interesting to see what does the transition look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's an exciting time to be a part of it. I think that there are still a lot of unknowns about what the transition looks like. Yeah. You know, we keep hearing within a year we're going to have fully autonomous cars. Uh, we're not right. <laughs> yeah. This is. I would, and I don't want to say it publicly, but I would you know say in private, even though this is public now, uh, that I would bet a large sum of money that. Even in the next five years, we're not going to have anything that really resembles fully autonomous cars, right? This, this may be a decades-long thing yeah. of that final refinement. Refinement, yeah. And the question gets to be, okay, at what point are, on average, they safe enough or our perceptions of them are that they're safe enough to, for us to buy, you know, without a steering wheel or something like that? Yeah, it will be. So, uh, and even like if we have uh, autonomous car in the market, mm -hmm. early adopters, which are 2% of the people, mm -hmm. they buy it, but after they, it's a kind of a cavity from early adopters to sustain 64% in the bell curve, yeah. when they got adopt your product, which is uh, autonomous car, self-driving car, it's a big challenge. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a big challenge because uh, early adopters may buy, but the 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 old people <laughs> yeah. they are afraid because they spend their entire life by using simple cars mm. which you control by yourself yeah and for them it's it's super difficult to buy yeah well and you also have to think about the financial elements of it of we're now rolling out vehicles that have some degree of self-driving capabilities and suggestions are that you know to get us to that full self-driving it'll be a software update rather than a hardware update. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, uh, but there is a large contingent of people for whom buying a new car is not feasible. Right? Yeah. And even buying a car that's only five years old is not feasible, right? And so we're looking at kind of this, even this phase progression, once we get past these early adopters, you know, buying a brand new car is great, but you're going to have folks that will not be able to buy a car that has this for decades to come. Right? Yes. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I think that it, it presents a whole other issue of outside of just the one-on-one -on -one interaction with the human in the system, kind of the societal interaction yeah, with a lot of these technologies. Because used car has a really good market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know, I don't know to what degree these vehicles depreciate at the same rate that others do. Yeah. I, I mean, I know Elon has talked about his goal is for a Tesla to be an appreciating asset rather than a depreciating mm. asset. Um, we're not there. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's a, it, it is an interesting idea. And then you start getting some of these other ideas of nobody actually owning a car, right? It's just kind of a fleet that drives around and picks yeah. you up when you need to be picked up and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't see that being a wide-scale answer. I think a lot of people just like their... Vehicles. Vehicles, yeah. 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 Um, but. 
right, uh, let's uh, talk about like uh, what is the effect on the brain or our perception uh, or reaction when we interact with uh, any autonomous system, like not only self-driving or any autonomous system. What are the so what is going on? So basically, cognitive psychology. Yeah. So what goes on in that back box? Like, can you talk about like what's motivate us like you know that surprising event like aha you know mm-hmm. when when you call shady call my friend right and it started i'm calling this person right yes. so what's what's going on in our human brain yeah so i mean i think there's essentially three things we need to think about when we're thinking about human interactions with automation or autonomy um first is trust that we've talked about a little yeah, bit and i'll yeah. talk about that more mm-hmm. in a second um, the second is uh, workload, and so essentially, what is it doing to your individual, uh, you know, the cognitive resources that you're putting in to whatever that task is? And third is situation awareness, right? And so, oh. what is using automation doing for your understanding of your surrounding environment? Mm-hmm. So, as it relates to trust, one of the things that we need to consider is people come into an interaction with a system having differing levels of trust, right? It doesn't yeah. matter what the system is, there's always gonna be this kind of discrepancy. And so the goal as a designer should be to get the users calibrated in their trust to the capabilities of that system, right? Because mm-hmm. what I wanna do from a safety perspective is not enhance trust. I don't want you over-trusting the system such that you're now complacent, you're not paying attention to whatever it is. Yeah. But I also don't want you under-trusting it, right? Yeah. There are systems you interact with daily then it makes sense to have exceptionally high trust, right? Yeah. You get into an elevator, you probably aren't thinking, oh God, I hope that the automated system here that's going to actually make it go up and down <sighs> is gonna work like it should, right? You, yeah. You're not thinking, okay, well, I wish there were still elevator operators in here. Um, but there are other systems that are not nearly as good and we need to kind of calibrate people's expectations lower. And so part of that kind of cognitive interaction with the system is this consistent sort of reappraisal of mm. how good is the system. And it's not always logical, yeah. right? Because you know certain types of errors are going to be more consequential than other types of errors when the error occurs, how mm-hmm. the error is responded to, things like that. Um, but this kind of constant reappraisal is a really important element of that interaction. Um, the workload aspect is also really interesting because it kind of depends on why you're automating something. Yeah. If you're automating something to then give somebody else or to give somebody a like a secondary task, you may not have alleviated workload. And in reality, you may have put yourself in a really bad position because if that automated system fails, we've now, we have a fixed workload, and at a certain point we have what we just kind of colloquially call the red line mm-hmm. of workload. That system failing now shoots your workload through the roof. Oh, right? yes. And so now you can't do either task well because yeah. the automated task needs to be done manually. Yeah. The secondary task needs to be done manually. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of an extreme example of this, but there's still, you know, people like to think of the sort of supervisory control as being a low workload task, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily, right? Yeah. You having to, and this pulls into situation awareness, you having to maintain a situational understanding of your mm-hmm. environment is inherently taxing, right? You yeah. think about, and we'll go back to driving, but uh, you think about all the contexts in which 
you are kind of doing a what if calculation, whether consciously or not, um, while driving, understanding that there's a motorcyclist in your blind spot yeah. is a really important thing to know because if the car in front of you slams on their brakes, you don't want to just kill, you know, Joe Cyclist <laughs> yeah. over there. Um, and so, you know, there's this kind of constant meshing here of trust, of workload, of situation awareness that, you know, part of the hurdle is getting people aware of these issues. Mm -hmm. The other part of the process is understanding the inherent limitations of the human mind and thus trying to enhance this cognition. So like uh, some cars will have blind spot monitoring. Yeah. That is deliberately an attempt to enhance one's situation awareness. Yes. Um, it can have consequential cascading effects of now people are becoming complacent and not actually checking their blind spot and so it doesn't work. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's this constant kind of appraisal of evaluating against what your goal is, where you mm -hmm. want to get, mm -hmm. How am I going to accomplish this goal successfully? Yeah. And I need to be consistently appraising whether or not I have the ability to actually do that. And um, you see this a lot with like people who like text and drive, yeah. and talk on the phone and drive, mm -hmm. something like that. 75% um, of people think they're better than average at driving, which <laughs> is just, it's mathematically impossible, right? <laughs> um, but it's because people are not that good at taking into account these sort of, these effects of situation awareness, of workload, um, less so trust in this example, but um, in the actual driving process. And so, you know, I'm biased, but it all comes down to the thoughts of the thoughts, user, whether yeah. they're conscious thoughts or just kind of instinctual responses and things like that. I see, okay. So, it's, um, I totally uh, agree, agree with that because like uh, when you, uh, encounter when you so technically automation what it does is it's reduce your workload you're delegating some work to the machine basically when you automate something you, you delegate something to the automatic system and it doesn't always have to be the delegation right the de delegation implies some degree of like we are automating a user's current task but you can also have the automation of things that wouldn't be possible if it were not ah, for the automation, right? Yes. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, it, it's kind of a nuanced distinction, but mm -hmm. I think it is still one worth noting because that changes potentially the workload profile. Because mm -hmm. now it's not just you're taking away work that the user has to do. Yeah. You're adding something in that the user can't Can do. do. Yeah. Yes. Or you're adding something in where, you know, the, the user is now having to add something to their workload as a function of just having this new technology come in. Yeah, it's the same like a swarm robots. Like when mm -hmm. I, I have one master robot, for example, let's say drones, I have master drone and I have other small drones, which this master drone, which I control by myself. Mm -hmm. But when I say, hey, perform this task, this, this master drone give the information for all the different drones. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is what I'm gonna do. So it, it kind of allocate Based on that capability, this master drone knows where these different zones are, their current position. Based on that, he allocated different tasks to them. So, mm -hmm. this is very complicated task to do for user. Oh yeah. But, yeah. but when we program that for this master drone, and we create one this system, which is Swarm Robot, mm -hmm. it can do 
like technically anything any complicated task for example heavy lifting or making uh, buildings you know they are, yeah. they they, they tra- like trans- they are capable to transform bricks to one place to another place in a very fast manner and I, and i think that's a really kind of important thing to be thinking about uh, and a great illustration of why consideration of the human is important if i told you that you have to control a thousand drones <laughs> there's not a chance right <laughs> but if i tell you you have to control a thousand drones that have some sort of governing central architecture yes that becomes a more feasible task. More feasible task. Right? So yes. now you've augmented what the human can do as a function of having a thousand drones, but you're not necessarily putting them in a task that's just impossible. Yeah, right. yeah. So this is a, yeah, basically this is kind of <laughs> making artificial structure, brain structure, which I our brain control different brain structure, which is master drone, you yeah. know, yeah, and it control all the systems. Yeah. Yeah, this... Uh, very innovative thing, yeah. It's yeah. exciting. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, uh, oh yeah, so let's talk about your uh, published uh, research paper and books, like uh, what, what, what type of uh, publications you have done? Yeah, so um, we've kind of touched a little bit on what I've done with like the Tesla and the mm-hmm. most recent paper. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you look at my CV, there is this clear kind of pivot point mm-hmm. of focusing on the human visual system, right? So some of my early uh, work was looking at what we call top-down influences on visual perception. Mm-hmm. So does, for example, my available level of energetic resources affect my perception of kind of distance or of slope, right? So is it literally changing what I'm seeing, right? Oh. Um, so that's what I did in graduate school. And then, um, I had an opportunity to intern at the Air Force Academy during my uh, PhD. Mm-hmm. That's when I started focusing on the automation elements. And so my dissertation was looking at um, essentially the way in which the visual system is treating automation. Right? Is automation a tool or is it just kind of a, a, an indication of something happening out in the world? Oh, okay. um, it's a gross oversimplification, but um, it, you know, just looking at essentially what are the consequences of automation on our actual spatial perception, and so uh-huh. that was where I started really getting into more of the automation stuff. Um, the The work I did at the Air Force Academy was largely focused around this Tesla. Uh, stuff, and then I've talked a little bit about some of the projects I've done here, but yes. uh, some of my collaborators uh, here at UAH that I'm working with and I are kind of working on a couple of really interesting projects that are funded through different mechanisms, right? And so one mm-hmm. is looking at um, acceptance and adoption of automated technologies. So uh, this is funded by the Navy, mm-hmm. and you can think about the context in which the Navy acquires some sort of automated technology. Yeah. But you, Chris, don't want to accept that technology, right? You don't want to use that technology. You know how to do your job, you know, whatever. Yeah. Right? And so what we're looking at is um, different mechanisms by which we can get you to use that technology, right? Aside from me just saying, use it, uh, right? What are the ways we can get you motivated to do so? So obviously we can have extrinsic rewards, right? So those are awards, rewards, excuse me, um, outside of you. 
So, I mean, that could be financial. We're not manipulating financial here, but uh, also things like gamification. Yeah. And so if I make it such that you get points for every time you do something that it's supposed to do, yeah. we know that people tend to use systems more because of that. Yeah. Um, also looking at reputational or leadership, yeah. uh, or leaderboard, excuse me, um, such that do you think that I'm going to put your name on a leaderboard with yeah. all of the people you know such that there's now this kind of expectation that I have to be better than everybody else. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and then even just like simple feedback of saying, good job. Right? Oh, so yeah. how's that affecting that? Um, so, you know, that's one of the projects I'm working on. It's Dr. Brian Mesmer, Christine mm -hmm. Vager. Um, I'm also working with uh, Samson Golston and Vanitha Minon here, um, all at UAH. Um, and we're working on a project funded through the Army um, and this is a little bit more broad in the sense of human interactions with systems, right? Yeah. And so this is where we're starting to get into some of the work about um, what's known as system-wide trust. So my trust in one specific component of a system mm -hmm. can potentially have cascading effects. Oh, yeah. Or so goes the, the literature. And um, we're writing a paper right now about why I, I think that there are some fatal flaws with the logic used in this, okay. but, um, so I won't preview those until I finish getting those thoughts together. But, um, so looking at that, uh, we're also inherently interested in um, developing these systems so that they have an understanding like you and I have, right? Uh -huh. So one of the things we think about when we think about human-to-human -human teaming, human-to-human -human interaction, is that we have the ability to pick up on certain things, right? Yeah. So if I said something right now that was incredibly offensive to you, I would see some sort of physical reaction, right? Yes. It may not be discussed, but it may be you now like kind of closing off, right? Uh, it may be some sort of uh, indication. Mm -hmm. uh, but similarly, if I do something that's boring you or if I do something that's violating your trust, I'm getting that sort of feedback, right? Yeah. So how do we develop these systems that have that sort of understanding? The uh, absence of that understanding can be incredibly crippling, right? And so yeah. we have a whole spectrum of disorders, right? Autism spectrum disorders that are essentially the inability to pick up on these social cues. Yeah. And so we're developing systems that have no ability to pick up on these social cues, which is already essentially putting a barrier in the human interaction with these systems. And so one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is how do we start modeling some of these cognitive constructs that we're fairly good at picking up on in one another mm -hmm. for a system to be able to use moving forward, right? So it can uh, say, I understand you as the user, as the operator, mm -hmm. and as such, you know, adapt when it needs to adapt, um, but also maintain this kind of naturalistic interaction such that I don't have to tell the system it's screwed up, right? You can oh, just yeah. say, I'm detecting some unease here. Um, <laughs> and so coming back to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, kind of the Cliff Notes version I always tell people is, I'm really interested in any time a human interacts with automation, mm -hmm. a robot, or artificial intelligence. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Um, now, I realize those are incredibly broad categories, oh, right? Man. But it's, <laughs> uh, I'm really interested in the interaction of the human mm -hmm. with these kind of cutting edge technologies. Yeah. So. Yeah, because like, all this technology has to interact with human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's a it's kind of uh, you know center point. You know, like to understand this is the main important part. Yeah. To adapt this technology. All the technology is surrounded by human, basically. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, anytime the human's involved, 
a psychologist needs to be involved in the conversation. Yeah. I'm biased, but I think and that's the irrefutable yeah, I, I also agree as an engineer, yeah. but yeah. Good, 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 good. We're doing our job yeah. here. Oh, boy, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a uh, pretty... Really, uh, of course, like, this is important, important stuff to uh, discover. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so let's talk about, like, uh, human involved in the, this... So your cognitive psychology, what are the uh, other aspects uh, which are massively affected over the course of, let's say, 10 years or 20 years of cognitive science improvement, right? So what are the areas? So transportation, we talk about mm -hmm. uh, self-driving car, but what are those? Space exploration, education, entertainment, yeah. politics? Yeah, I mean, so uh, again, I am obviously biased. But I think you would be hard-pressed to find any domain that has not in some way been significantly impacted by cognitive psychology over the last couple of decades, right? Yeah. So we think to transportation, right? Mm -hmm. The banning of texting while driving is an inherently cognitive thing, right? Yes. What most people don't realize is that it's also incredibly dangerous to even just be talking on the phone. And it's not because of occupation of your hands. It's a cognitive it's like, factor. Yes. Yes. Brain is involved in that conversation rather than focusing on what's going on in the external environment. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's an inherently cognitive thing, right? Um, the application of cognitive psychology to um, domains of education, right? So what are the ways in which we can be presenting information that makes it easier for you to remember, yes. but also access down the line, right? And so... Uh, you know, going to this whole idea of mnemonics, right? Yes. Make things. Um, so I teach the statistics class here, mm -hmm. and I start off every semester by just reminding everybody PIMDAS, right? The order of operations. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> even if people don't remember what PIMDAS stands for, most people remember PIMDAS. PIMDAS, yeah. Right? Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, obviously in the education there. Uh, in marketing, I mean, I think a big element of marketing now is to try and yes. create these... Recommendation systems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these associations that people don't necessarily know. Uh, um, you know, it's the typical case of, you know, you see a car and then you see a good-looking woman. This is kind of the classic oversimplified version, yeah. right? But they're trying to pair that sort of physiological arousal, and I don't mean sexual, but physiological arousal with seeing an attractive member of the opposite sex yeah. with that car, right? And you make these pairs enough, uh, the hope is that... Um, now, uh, that is kind of more the behavioral side of what I just described there, mm -hmm. less than the cognitive. But, um, and then also going to uh, like behavioral economics. So Dan Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, I don't know how many years ago it was now, but I think over a decade. Um, and his collaborator, collaborator, Amos Tversky, passed before he was able to get the prize as well. But mm -hmm. on this idea of um, the irrational user, right? So mm -hmm. economics has traditionally been this view that you have a rational actor that you can model, right? Yes. You know that they're going to interact in their own best interest. But we now know that's not true. So, you know, if I asked you um, to go ahead and just spin a wheel, mm -hmm. like you have in the Wheel of Fortune or uh, Price is Right, yeah. right, where it has all the values up to uh, 100, which would be the dollar. Yeah. And then I asked you how many, uh, what percentage of African countries are in the UN? Those are two completely unrelated things, right? Yes. But what we find is that the number you spun 
on the price of right wheel uh -huh. impacts your estimation huh. of uh, how, what percentage of African countries are in the UN, right? Uh -huh. It's completely unrelated. Yeah. There's no reason you should rely on that. But it's this what we call this anchoring effect, wherein uh. you have this expectation, yes. and therefore you, uh, you anchor it across that, right? And there are other effects like, uh, you know, the availability heuristic, confirmation bias is a big thing that we talk about now mm -hmm. in society. So uh, I always like to tell my students, an example of confirmation bias is when you go to Google and you type in the truth behind whatever, right? Yeah. So people look for information that supports their Their belief, yeah, 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 their belief, yes. <laughs> and so, you know, we see this a lot uh, being manifest in kind of the technology. But yeah, I mean, anytime there is a user, a human involved, which is just about every domain of life, yeah. uh, I think you would be hard pressed to point to that and say, this has not been some way influenced by cognitive psychology uh, in the last couple decades. Yeah, and um, so, when the uh, like as per your point of view what is the like kind of golden period in the computer uh, uh, cognitive psychology history where where the lot of researchers are booming and influence so there must be like any decade or something like that where a lot of people indulge in the cognitive psychology so i think the good question is when it's cognitive psychology is diversify from the behavior psychology <laughs> mm, yeah. yeah well, um, what was the time period like? Man, I'm going to kick myself for not knowing this. I, my recollection was it was kind of late 50s, early 60s. Uh -huh. um, but I would, I would verify that before you, you, you give that a trivia. <laughs> uh, um, but as far as, and this is going to sound incredibly self-serving, but I think as far as the most important time in cognitive psychology, I think it's right now. And I think that's uh, for yeah. a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. One, there's kind of been this cross-domain understanding, not just in psychology, but in a lot of other fields, that the traditional statistical methods we're using, like null hypothesis, standard testing, p-value, mm -hmm. stuff like that, are inherently flawed, right? Uh, and so we've been relying on flawed methodology or statistical methodology mm -hmm to derive understandings about the nature of human cognition, yeah. um, which has rendered a fair number of effects kind of null once we actually apply uh, new approaches to it, right? So Bayesian uh, statistics or things like that. Um, I, I think that's an important thing. Mm -hmm. I think the other reason that right now is perhaps the most important time in cognitive psychology history is because there is this enhancement of technology that allows us to study things in ways we've never studied it before. Right? Yes, fMRI, right? Yeah, yes, fMRI. fMRI and, uh, yeah, and even, so yeah. fMRI is really good at um, uh, spatial localization. Uh -huh. uh, you have things like EEG, which are really good at yes, temporal. EEG, yes. Yeah. Um, so I think those, right, the portability of that, that gets yeah. a little bit more into like the neuroscience uh -huh. element, but cognitive and neuroscience are typically kind of lumped into the same group. Mm -hmm. um, but you also get the ability to develop much more complex computational models of human cognition. Yes. You're able to collect a lot more data a lot quicker, a lot easier, a lot cheaper mm -hmm. that allow for these understandings to be developed, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not a programmer, but I, you know, in an afternoon can write a program in Python that, you know, samples at 60 hertz. And so now I'm getting all sorts of nuanced behavior yes. from the user of whatever we're looking at that just wasn't necessarily feasible 20 years ago, right, uh, for your average psychologist. Yes. Um, and you also get 
the kind of democratization of a lot of these advanced technologies. Right? Yes. So eye tracking has never been easier and cheaper to have high fidelity eye tracking. <laughs> yeah, right? true. Um, EEG, you know, we already talked about the neuroimaging things. Mm-hmm. Um, just the capabilities of current computers allow yeah. for much more complex experiments. Yes. Um, you're also getting these technologies like self-driving cars, excuse me, um, like drones, things like that, where now I'm not having the person just pretend that they're interacting with a self-driving car. I'm putting them in a self-driving car yes. and seeing what are the consequences. Uh, um, so it's self-serving to yeah. say that now's the most important <laughs> yes, time. Yeah. Uh, but I really do think that you know, we're at a really exciting frontier uh, that has put cognitive psychology in a position to enjoy prominence moving later into the century uh, once we start understanding collectively, we as a society start yeah. understanding the importance of understanding human cognition. I see. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it's, uh, of course, uh, like over the last 20 years, like the internet boom and then after in the 2015 to 18, the AI, uh, Kind of artificial intelligence boom, you know, and, yeah. and like I think uh, 2018 was a big time in AI when a lot of companies are indulging and getting a, a, like like making the products mm-hmm. which is more involved with humans, and at that point, the cognitive psychology become a frontier in the I think all the psychology domain too, uh, you know, because like this is so vital uh, element when thus. This kind of psychology has to come into picture when the advancement of technology come into picture, you know, so. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I think it's given people a really healthy appreciation for just how unbelievably complex the human brain is. Yes, yeah. I mean, AlphaGo uh, or AlphaZero or whatever iteration they're on now, I don't even remember, is incredibly competent in an extremely narrow thing. (laughs) But what makes the humans incredible is that we can competent at a lot of things yeah right yeah and so the attempt to try and replicate the brain I think has given society a much greater appreciation for just what an unbelievable tool oh. we all have just sitting up there just, yeah. browsing TikTok or whatever the heck we do <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah so um, so let's talk about the um, so we have advancement of technology so what's your thought about ethics of AIs and uh, you know the deep fake which mm-hmm. is uh, uh, getting much more popularity on the I think I saw one of the professor at MIT he representing the uh, he introducing uh, his class uh, by using deep fake as Obama is yes, talking I've seen that. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so this is this is new so initially I thought oh my god Obama is representing the class and then yeah. after at the end of this speech it's kind of disclaimer that Okay, this is <laughs> this is a fake video yeah. by using artificial intelligence. So, so what is the what do you think about uh, ethics of AI? Because when I saw that video, mm-hmm. I I cannot believe first of all. Yeah, you know, but like I see lips of the president, ex president, but yeah, still introducing that. This was really surprising for me. Mm-hmm. One point of time, literally, I because the voice and the lips, and it feels like it's real. Mm-hmm. You know, so what do you think about the ethics of AI in the future? Yeah, so uh, that's actually another project we're working on right now with a couple collaborators mm-hmm. um, here that um, 
we're looking at essentially susceptibility to deepfakes. But mm -hmm. that is secondary to the fact that I'm not a computer scientist. Yes. I am not somebody who has spent a considerable part of my life understanding the nuances of code, and yeah. yet I was able to generate these deepfakes that we're using for our research project, right? By using yeah. open source code, and God, I wish I could remember the name of the authors on the paper, um, but there, had, uh, there is an approach that allows me to take a static image of Joe Biden mm -hmm. and upload a video of myself. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> create it as if Joe Biden is moving his head around and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And I was able to just download a synthetic uh, you know, a voice changer for free on uh, the App Store to make myself sound like Joe Biden. And so I created these deepfakes yeah. with this open source code that was already there, adding a few lines of my own and creating deepfakes that, you know, aren't going to, you know, win any prizes, yeah. but are passingly good enough that makes it such that you don't need advanced capabilities to do this, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's where I think the ethics get really interesting of the cat's out of the bag, right? Yeah. Any hope we had about limiting these systems is just gone. Yeah. And so now you see kind of this arms race of enhanced capabilities and people trying to still be able to detect those capabilities, right? Yeah. And so insofar as I know, we're still at the point where every approach to the generation of deep fakes can still be detected through artifacts in the videos. And yes. Um, but we're likely going to get to a point where that's not true. I, I don't know. I mean, it, there's no law that dictates that that would be true. But yeah. it seems very plausible to me. Um, and so we then get into the question of, like, what do we do as a society? right? Because the ethical question of deepfakes no longer exists. Yes. Right. Because we all know that they're going to be used for nefarious purposes if they haven't already been. Yeah. Uh, and so the question about whether that's ethical or not is one for philosophers to just discuss amongst just themselves. Discuss, yeah, yeah. Because as society, it doesn't matter whether it's ethical or not. It matters that we're it's already here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and there are still kind of I think peripheral conversations you can have about what is the role of, for example, you know, the U.S. Mm -hmm. issuing these as a deep fakes as an attempt to, uh, you know, sow distrust or stuff like that. But um, that question continues, I think, to other domains that haven't fully realized the same levels of success that like deep fakes have. So. Yeah. The conversation about artificial general intelligence, right? You have people much smarter than I am, Sam Harris, you have Elon Musk, you have uh, you know, Ben Gertzel, uh, all these folks that are talking about artificial general intelligence in yes. different ways. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think that we are at a point now of having gone over the cliff. Yeah. Right? So there will become a point mm -hmm. where you can't put the cat back in the bag. Yeah. I don't think we're there, but I also don't think people know when we'll be there. Oh, yes. This is the main part. Like, when will we be there? It's a big question. Yeah. Then, like, the, the issue is, are we there? When we should apply any, like, if there is an ethical issue. So we need any ethical issue or any ethical policies or not? When we need that, what type of uh, policies we need that? It's, it's a big issue to 
ponder, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I think the really interesting part of this, so for the longest time, I was kind of of the camp of just give it a moral code mm. and it doesn't pose kind of an existential risk. Yeah. And I'm not one of these fatalistic folks that say it's going to doom us as a society. Mm. But there are idiosyncrasies that I don't think we're necessarily talking about as a society in the sense that any artificial general intelligence, for it to truly have, I think, general intelligence, it has to have the ability to reason. Right? Yes. It has to be. It doesn't have to be a fully logical system. We're not fully logical. We still have general intelligence, I would say. But um, it has to have the ability to reason. And so we can't just give it a moral code and yeah. say, you have to follow this. Hmm. Because it's not inherently logical any moral standing we have, right? And so yeah. I think to give an example here, um, I think his first name was David. Um, but there's this idea of uh, the is-ought problem or Hume's guillotine. Mm -hmm. um, and it's this idea that you cannot derive what ought to be done from an observation about what's true in the world. So for example, I can't say it's cold outside, therefore you should wear a coat. Mm -hmm. it, just, it takes a logical leap to get there because it presupposes uh. that you don't want to be cold. Yes. Right? And so it is logical for me to say it's cold outside, therefore if you don't want to be cold, you should wear a coat. You should, yeah. But the problem is, once we start looking at the programming of ethics into an artificial intelligence system, you cannot give it a logical foundation for any ethical or moral position. Yes. Right? Yeah. Society, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, is essentially built on the foundations of essentially an illogical agreed upon moral code. Right? Yeah. And I don't mean illogical as in it's not good. I mean illogical in the sense that you cannot reason to first principles that it is, in fact, better to not steal than to steal. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. It seems like, uh, like if I, so if I kill, for example, if I kill someone, I kill for revenge or I kill uh -huh. for my safety. Yeah. It's my perception. Yeah. Right? I, if I'm in threat, I kill, like, uh, for example, there is... Uh, for example, dog is coming and planning to bite me very harsh. Yeah. Then I hurt him. It's kind of understandable, uh -huh. right? But if I kill him for revenge, I, I kill the dog for revenge, you know, that's not not ethical. Ethical. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and so, I think that kind of gets to an issue wherein we are, we have gut instincts yes. that something is ethical or not. I think most of that is cultural because you do see cultural discrepancies in kind of, I mean, there's pretty universal agreement that, you know, you shouldn't kill. Yeah. Um, but as you point out, there are circumstances wherein we deem that acceptable, right? Self-defense. Yeah, yeah self-defense. So the point is like, which ethics has come first? Mm -hmm. than, like self-defense must be higher priority than killing someone. You know, like if I kill someone for self-defense, it's good. Uh -huh. But for revenge, it's bad. So it's kind of like ranking of the ethics and prioritization on based on the circumstances. Yes, and that's certainly how we've attributed it. But, you know, getting back to um, Hume's guillotine, there's, you cannot logically argue that it is wrong to murder, right? Yeah. I, we all agree, in part, I think, for selfish reasons, because we don't want to be murdered. Yeah. 
we won't murder. It's kind of like disagreement that <laughs> yes. I'm not going to murder, but you can't murder too, right? Mm. Um, but getting back to the AI element, you can't program in a logical system. So you have to assume that this system will adhere to whatever kind of collective agreement we say yeah. is appropriate. Um, mm. And you know, people always like to go to Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, right? <laughs> Um, you know, aside from the fact that Asimov, I don't think ever intended for that to be taken seriously, <laughs> there are also inherent flaws just in that. Mm -hmm. And as we start diving deeper into it, it does raise the question of, okay, we want a logical system, mm -hmm. but we can't help it logically see the merits in what we're saying, right? That uh, is moral and immoral. Yes. And so, you know, what does the system do? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think anybody knows. Um, and so I'm not in any way advocating we stop AI research. And it is different than like nuclear developments in the sense that, you know, to develop a nuclear weapon, it seems like you have to have substantial infrastructure. Right? There yes. has to be some. It's not clear that artificial general intelligence or even just incredibly advanced narrow AI mm -hmm. is going to require that much infrastructure. It's right. software. Yeah, it's software, exactly. Now, I, I think a lot of the deep learning approaches now are incredibly computationally uh, costly. Yes. But who's to say that a new approach to AI doesn't come out that just proves to be, you know, I could run it on my you know, 2015 <laughs> MacBook. Yes. There's no, there's no law of nature that precludes that from being true. Yes. And so I don't know how we keep the nefarious from implementing it, but also from the well-intentioned that it just, it turns out that an AI system that is of such intelligence that it can reason through things just says, you know what, the best way to end human suffering is just to kill all the humans now and there won't be any suffering in the future, right? And so I've maximized the return possible yeah. by just neutralizing humans now. Uh. <laughs> but. I mean, this is one of the things that I love yeah. to think about and hear others talk about who are much smarter than I am. Um, but it's a real issue, and I, I think we would be fools not to be considering it pretty seriously when we're playing God of creating uh, something that could potentially be the end of us as a species. Yeah, but, who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah, uh, yeah. so, uh, yeah, that's... Um, and also, like, uh, this is an ethical issue... Uh, are uh, also dealing with the so we sh of course we shouldn't like grow because any threat or uh, because like there are no any standard which we can define that this is good or mm -hmm. this bad mm -hmm. so there is no point to uh, you know like limit the technological advancement based on our uh, fear this because like a couple of my friends they, they they even don't know what is artificial intelligence and I said yeah. this is just a math. <laughs> yeah, this, this is a partial differential equations which they use and they call neural networks and yeah. they do some math and they give some output. There is no fear in that mm -hmm. because like basically this is what we make. Yeah. So we can control this. Yes. You know, yeah, of course, like what's number when you train, we don't know what number will pop up. Yeah. Right. So we just name this artificial intelligence because they are kind of giving us a smart results, mm -hmm. basically. 
these are just smart results which is hard for us to get yes and <laughs> my understanding is largely deterministic right yes same input are going to give us the same output yeah you can determine that you can as i talk like you can make the system dynamic mm -hmm. but you can even make like you you can control their systems yeah. you can control the neural network you can control how they behave mm -hmm. you know so it's not like uh like if if we find that in the future maybe there is some uh, ethical issue we can control that mm -hmm. right because like each and every technology hey each and every technology has problem in the past we fix that mm -hmm. and we still exist we are living awesome life mm -hmm. it's the best time to live <laughs> yeah, yeah i agree 100%. so uh yeah uh, it's a uh, yeah system has to be improved uh and of course um, in the ethical issues they are they will be of course uh not there is there are no point where we we cannot control things so so i'm going to push back on that i don't know if that's true huh. right? so we don't know what human consciousness is right uh, yeah we don't you know there are a lot of attempts to localize in the brain where consciousness is and uh, this gets back to the whole cartesian dualism and i think it ties back nicely to your start here but of the mind and the brain right is yeah. is the mind distinct from the brain in there and so because we don't know what human consciousness is mm -hmm. i don't know who among us can look at where we're at with AI and say, if we run this code, it becomes conscious, right? Uh. <laughs> because in reality, a lot of these more complex things, we just don't, we can dig into it, but we yeah. don't really know what's going on in uh, kind of these hidden layers, right? Yeah. It is, it is inherently non-abstract to know that, okay, we have certain weights, we have certain biases, yes. right? But that's essentially what, the human brain in a very deeply reduced yeah, yeah yeah right it's it's a neuron it fires or it doesn't right yeah it has certain neurotransmitters that it puts out and so i don't know that we get to a point wherein we say this is going to become conscious and once it becomes conscious I don't know if we have control over it anymore, right? The uh, computational yeah. capabilities yes. of the system far exceed. Oh, oh yeah. Or, they yeah. have, because they can think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so once we get to a system oh, that yeah. can truly reason, it can truly then think, it becomes conscious, has yes. its own self-motivation. Yeah. I don't know if we can actually ever get there. It's not, like, it's not clear that, again, from the laws of nature, that we could ever create a system that is conscious. Conscious, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think you're right that... It's always funny to see people talk about AI, and it's like that's a multiple regression, right? That, <laughs> that's not artificial intelligence. You, you just ran basic statistical methods here. Yeah. Um, and so it does get to the question of you know what is intelligence? How are we starting to think about intelligence? And it does get between the narrow and the general. Um, but you know, I think it's a really, it's something that keeps me up at night thinking about. Yeah, it. yeah. So it's, it's fun. <laughs> and like a lot of companies like OpenAI mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, uh, the Boston Dynamics, mm -hmm. which is, uh, they are heavily working on this stuff. And because like, uh, they are uh, creating, so I just uh, get to know GP GPT-3, mm -hmm. which is like vast train neural networks for natural language processing. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually it's a text converter, I would say. But of course, OpenAI is working on uh, AI and robotic systems, a very 
like kind of advanced and smart manner they have super uh, awesome algorithm which i think about to like you know at least they have partial consciousness for mm. that software you know to like automate some things mm. so we'll get there <laughs> it's man it's interesting oh uh, yeah it's a uh, yeah it's, and whether or not gpt3 has any conceptual understanding of what it's outputting yeah. it is still an incredibly capable system yeah because like and also like i uh, i myself work in haptic feedback system mm -hmm. uh, so like we create like you can literally wear hand model and uh, this hand like uh, it the cameras detect the your hand position it goes to the virtual environment and in virtual environment i have certain setup my hand interact with that setup in virtual environment mm -hmm. and i am feeling in real life that oh i am touching something so basically if i change something in virtual environment i can feel what's mm. like for example in the virtual environment there is fire i can feel heat in my mm. hand mm -hmm. you know so if <laughs> uh, this kind of uh, like out of the box but if i generate ai system which dictate the virtual world because in the fact that i am wearing that uh, equipment is kind of ready player one if you yeah. watch the movie yeah yeah <laughs> So if I'm wearing that suit, hey, I'm gonna feel that. Yeah. To feel the virtual environment, and virtual environment has control with AI. Yeah. It's kind of closed look haptic feedback, uh, so I can experiencing whatever I want and whatever I desire based on the AI system. Because, it, for example, I want to feel the uh, skiing. I tell, hey, I want to feel skiing at the uh, at the mount, uh, you know, the, any any uh, the mountain in. Uh, uh, Canada or yeah. maybe uh, Michigan, I guess, yeah, uh, right? So absolutely. I just wear a suit; it will feel me. Yeah. It will give me that feeling. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it, it, it really, I think it's an exciting frontier. Yeah, and I like, like this uh, big companies. Yeah. Itself, myself, I develop the hand, mm -hmm. which experience that feedback. Mm -hmm. I literally feel the force. of the virtual environment what is there i feel in my hand mm -hmm. yeah so, so we are about that like of course ai stuff is not there yet yeah but uh, this companies is, are getting there yeah. <laughs> yeah it's exciting yeah this is a real interesting talk about uh, this stuff so now let um, like uh, address what you think what your advice actually for uh, a new undergraduate or graduate students uh, who want to get involved in Uh, psychology or cognitive psychology and uh, learn how we interact with the uh, things and uh, how to uh, how we process and uh, mm -hmm. you know change like how our understanding of human brain uh, in terms of psychology change dramatically over the years when they want to learn these things how how they can indulge in this area Um, so, I mean, it kind of depends on the level. If somebody is looking at graduate school, I think obviously the best place to go is looking at kind of the source documents of research articles and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, obviously taking the classes, engaging with faculty members. Um, I think one of the the best ways to really get your feet wet in cognitive psychology is to be thinking critically about essentially the why the why question right yeah why is it like this right? uh, maybe it's because of a purposeful design right or maybe it's because 
nobody thought better, right? Yeah. Um, kind of deconstructing the elements of this into trying to understand the very foundation of the human experience, right? And that yes. is our thoughts. Yeah. Um, you know, I think for anybody who's really interested in cognitive psychology, kind of as just a broad level, reading a book um, like uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Kahneman, yes. like I was talking about earlier, um, I think that is a great place to go. Um, you know, I think that there are, you know, fortunately, a, a lot of popular press approaches um, or popular press offerings within the domain of psychology, right? And so mm -hmm. not just necessarily cognitive psychology, yeah. um, you know, like Jonathan Haidt, uh, Stephen Pinker, right? Mm -hmm. um, I already talked about Sam Harris. So uh, there are a lot of great resources out there if you just kind of want to dip your feet into it. Yeah. Um, but as far as, you know, really getting into cognitive psychology, you know, thinking about what classes they can take at college or in graduate school, mm -hmm. um, and really, you know, starting to take advantage of this new wave of user experience research, yeah. which is, it kind of boils down to applied cognitive psychology, right? It's getting yes. down to the human and its element. And, you know, the benefit of it exploding as a career field is that there are a whole bunch of certificate programs, there are a whole bunch of online resources. I'm not saying that, you know, those are uh, a substitute for actually getting in, in the classroom and yes. uh, interacting. But, um, you know, I think that there are a lot of really interesting real-world examples that if you just start looking at, okay, you know, potential disasters, explanation for disasters, yes. like you were talking about before, the Asiana flight mm -hmm. uh, that crashed in San Francisco years ago, um, or Three Mile Island, right? There's an engineering component, but there's a human component. Yes. And starting to read about that human component, I think, is a foundation for cognitive psychology. Uh, I see. So it's kind of uh, in news element to get involved in the cognitive psychology. To yeah. Get, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, <laughs> it become catalyst. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so, yes, uh, regarding. So uh, this is about the students. So like what challenges you have faced? So getting classes and understanding this uh, cognitive psychology is the one thing. But mm -hmm. when you do research in cognitive psychology, mm -hmm. It's a whole different challenge. So mm -hmm. what you suggest for current researcher who is involved in that? Uh, so what, like, what is the mental process? They have to, you know, the structure of the mind, yeah. you know, they have to develop to, like, you know, getting acceleration in that research. What's your, what's your suggestion? Man, that is so tough. So I have substantial, like, imposter syndrome. Like anytime I go into a room with other academics, why am I here? Don't tell them that I don't know what the heck I'm doing, right? Uh, and I think one of the reasons I have been as relatively prolific as I have been in publication is to try and combat that, you know, inferiority or imposter mm. syndrome. Um, but, you know, I think it helps to really love what you're doing because you're then always thinking about it, Yeah. right? Even when I'm not working, I'm still thinking about work, not in the context of like, this is what I have to do or stuff like that. Yes. But I'm thinking about the very foundational elements of my interaction with my truck when I'm driving, right? Yeah. Or I'm thinking about, you know, what it means for GPT-3 to have its capabilities now and what that does 
for interactions with the system and expectations of the system, right? So, uh, um, you know, it's kind of a cop-out answer, but I think once you become really super passionate about what it is you're researching, mm -hmm. the questions don't necessarily come easier, but it becomes easier to put in the mental effort and resources to get there, uh, right? Yes. Um, and so, you know, as far as when it actually comes to the research design, uh, I, I think the best process is always just read, read, read. Yeah. I, I love the quote. I can't remember who it's attributed to, but uh, well, actually Isaac Newton. It was, uh, you know, if I'm able to see further than others, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Right. And it's that idea of I'm not trying to revolutionize the field. I'm just <laughs> trying to take what brilliant minds have already realized mm -hmm. and take them a step further. Not to say I want to be incremental. Yeah. Right? I want to make real meaningful contributions and wherein that dictates that we reconceptualize something that we thought was axiomatically kind of agreed upon. Mm -hmm. um, I'm happy to do so. But I think focusing on research as a tool to understand the most complex thing we know, yeah. in this case, the human mind, or whatever it is, you know, in robotics, the creation of something that seemed sci-fi five years ago yes. that you can now do. Yeah. Um, that passion, I think, should not be undersold. I think if you yeah. don't like what you're researching, why do it? <laughs> yeah, like uh, the, the, the quote, Elon Musk, always, like the quote I always uh, admire is, over the future, it's very hard to distinguish sci-fi with the reality. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so difficult. Because like, before 100, 200 years, we are not like, even I cannot imagine from like flying from India to here within uh, maybe one or two days. It's, it's, it's impossible. Yeah, flying is like, people don't believe that. Like even, so I would say like, sci-fi is like, you know, what gonna be but yeah. in the future something will pop up which even you cannot think right now absolutely yeah <laughs> and i think that's the most exciting about what i do of engaging with this technology of uh, there's another elon quote that actually i think I even saw on your webpage of um what was it i could either watch it happen or be a part of yes. it or something like that yeah, right? yeah. and so uh, you know, being a very, very, very inconsequential and small spoke in kind of this, the developments of these technologies is incredibly exciting to me, right? Yeah. I want, long after I'm gone, there still to have been a residual benefit for the work I've been doing. Yes. Um, it's kind of uh, effect, like a domino effect, which, yeah. Yeah, 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 because like when you pull up one domino, it will affect future researchers or they pull up your work and it, like it's kind of uh, further existence of the uh, like extension of the work basically. Yeah. Yeah, because people don't want to invent a will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, please don't invent a will. Yeah. Yeah, first like take a will, make a car, sell it. Uh -huh. Different people take that model, invent a new things, again make a new, sell it. Like it's kind of yeah. progress. Yeah, and uh, I would say as a, even a researcher, I also want to be uh, one stepping stone mm -hmm. in the in the like in the big picture in the long journey. Mm -hmm. You know, one stepping stone in my areas to uh, advancing whole like whole community. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and I think our obligation collectively, our research scientific 
obligation is to not reinvent the wheel just for the sake of reinventing the wheel, but at times to ask whether the wheel's even necessary, right? Yes. <laughs> so building upon something is great, but sometimes it takes the courage to say, I'm not convinced this is the right path we should be going down, right? Yes. And to look at that new thing. Um, you know, for all the crap I give Elon, I think he has done a great job of pushing society in certain directions, right? Mm. Electric cars are now no longer seen as something that's just kind of, you know, boring, very slow, right? Yeah. It's exciting. Uh, I think Elon is largely responsible for a lot of these companies moving towards self-driving cars. Yes. Um, you know, SpaceX, things we have there. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a lot of other great Even, uh, innovators. But... I think Neuralink, what's your thought about, yeah, what's your thought about Neuralink? Because um, it will, uh, like, basically, you, like, input the chip in your brain. Yeah. So, your uh, your communication with the action environment, with mm. your brain, becomes so much faster. The frequency transformation from your brain. Because, like, if I type something in my computer or say something, there is some frequency of communication. Mm -hmm. But when I put my chip on my brain, yeah. the bandwidth and co the transformation of information is become so much faster. So how, what you thought about this type of advanced technologies? So I think Neuralink is the classic Elon example of overpromise, under-deliver, uh, but still make impressive contributions along do, the way, yeah. right? Um, his, you know, at times stated goal of this is going to become a way to essentially offload all these computations, right? Or <laughs> You know, you can be looking at innervation throughout the cortex with this chip right in the wires. Uh, I, I just, it, it does not strike me as anything feasible. Um, that being said, I think what he is doing is brilliant in the sense that he is now making, because of commercial viability, mm -hmm. this sort of intervention that allows for, for example, you know, paralyzed individuals to regain function of certain muscles, right? If we can now start essentially yes. bridging the connection that was severed as a function of uh, whatever the precipitating event for the paralysis was. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I always, I think once you pay enough attention to a lot of these tech companies, you start taking things with a grain of salt and seeing that what's exciting about these tech companies is not what they're promising, but what they're likely to accomplish along the way to failing to accomplish what <laughs> okay. they said the final goal is. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's not to detract from the merits, right? I mean, I think that there are all sorts of forces acting on that. But mm -hmm. um, I think that there is a lot of excitement with people dreaming big yeah. and accomplishing really incredible things along the way, even if it's not what this sci-fi, yeah. yeah, of I can just upload my consciousness to a computer. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's exciting. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely exciting as well. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, let's let's talk about like what you, okay, as a psychologist, uh, it might be a uh, different question, but what do you do for fun apart from research? Yeah, um, so apart from doing everything. Yeah. Um, 
I'm really big into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I've gotten into Muay Thai lately. What is, um, uh, like, exactly that? Yeah, so uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, it's like wrestling, except mm -hmm. instead of trying to pin people, you try and choke them or put their oh. joints in position that if they didn't give up, and we just signify that by tapping, okay. uh, you would break the joint, right? And so oh. um, it's an inherently cerebral thing. I, mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of folks, and this is not to say that there's any necessary uh, Components of, you know, an educational background to get there, but there are a lot mm -hmm. of folks with advanced degrees oh, who really? do train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it's uh -huh. a chess match. Like it's a, oh. it's a physical, three-dimensional, uh, you know, me versus you chess match. Of I have to know what you're doing, and I'm going to have to try and respond. Oh. Um, so I love that. Um, oh. I've recently gotten into Muay Thai. I stink at that. That's, that's essentially just kickboxing. Oh, okay. Um, but I really enjoy that. I, I enjoy things that allow me to, kind of turn off the brain for a little while uh, and react. Yeah. Um, I'm big into fishing. I also love reading. So if you have yes. any recommendations for books. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I'm kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. It, like <laughs> I love getting my feet wet and a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, like yeah. I just started trying to learn how to play the violin. Oh really? I, I'm awful. My dogs hate that I'm trying to learn how to play the violin. Um, but I really like the process of learning something new, a new school a skill set, or a new way of thinking. New way of thinking, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so what's your favorite book to read? What's your favorite book so far? Oh man, the better question is what book you are reading right now? Yeah, well, my favorite book of all time, I think, is 1984. I know that's kind of a cliche, okay. but um, I think I think Orwell had some really great insights into the human condition hmm. um, that. I think are noteworthy. Um, the book I'm reading right now is actually one by Jake Tapper um, called Outpost. I think it was turned into a movie, but essentially huh. about um, operations in Afghanistan early on and the war over there. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I'm a real big uh, history buff, more okay. modern history. Uh -huh. uh, and I don't want to say buff in the sense that I know what the hell I'm talking about, yeah. but buff in the sense that I just love accessing that information. Curious about okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. Basically, okay. um, yeah, so, you know, I think particularly, this is down a rabbit hole you don't care about, but uh, I think particularly like the American Civil War, mm -hmm. I'm just overwhelmingly interested in because it was a war maybe more so than just about any other war in history that focused on collective ideologies, right? Huh. This idea that it was worth going to war over uh, self-governance, right? Oh, yes. Um, now, again, this is down a path, but uh, I, I love kind of indulging in kind of any of these domains mm -hmm. that have a real kind of psychological element. Yeah, so you always find what's the effect on the brain. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm, just, I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated by the brain. Yeah. Uh, and so, I'm, whether you know the readings are about the brain or not, it's mm -hmm. always really interesting to me to kind of see the ties. The ties with the brain, yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, about to saying that uh, we had really awesome talk about artificial yeah. intelligence. Yeah, this was awesome, man. Yeah, and effect on the brain. Yeah. And yet, ignore your different hobbies and uh, how you tie up your hobbies with the brain. That was yeah. remarkable. Well, I, I really appreciate this. It's been a great conversation. It's uh, cool uh, what you're doing. I think yeah, there's oh, a lot of potential, and I'm really yeah. excited to see just how big it gets. <laughs> yeah, I. 
Tawal, uh, I also have privilege to having you in my podcast. Uh, my podcast name is Many Things in Why because why is the main important thing yes. which we are doing anything, right? Exactly. So, uh, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining this podcast. Absolutely, Thank, man. You, very much, thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Well-